0: Well, how many of you find yourselves just a little bit competitive? Maybe you'd categorize yourself as having a little bit of a competitive edge to you. Well, I've got a little quiz we're going to start off with this morning. So if you're a little bit competitive, you can keep score for yourself here. We're going to play a little game this morning, talk a little bit about money And I want to ask you to fill in the blanks with some cliches that we have about money. If I was still in high school ministry, I would throw M&Ms out to you if you got them right. But we won't do that this morning. But fill in the blank if you would. Money makes the world what? Go around. A penny saved is a penny. Money talks, right? We say that things are right on the... We say that money burns holes in our... And thanks to Cuba Gooding Jr, we can now say, "Show me the right? Paul McCartney, what did he say? "I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love." Another day, another, and you can bet your bottom that there's no such thing as a free." And we say that certain things are worth their weight in. We've got a lot to say about money. So, off the top of your head, if you had to guess, does anybody know the name of the richest person in the world, according to Forbes in early 2011? Who is the richest person in the world? It's a Mexican telecommunications mogul. His name is Carlos Halu. Richest American? Couple guesses Bill Gates. Who's the poorest person in the world? What's his or her name? Okay, maybe that's too big the poorest person in the world. Poorest American poorest resident of Illinois, maybe the poorest person in DuPage County. Who are they? Where do they live? What's their, what's their life like? What's their total accumulated wealth like? We have a lot to say about money in our culture and in our world. Money informs so much of the conversations we have, either directly or indirectly. Jesus said more about money than he did about prayer. He said more in scripture about money than prayer. More about money than fasting, parenting, worship songs, sex, divorce, marriage, family, baptism, healing. He said more about money than all of those things. The Old Testament and the New Testament combined, we have around 800 passages that talk about wealth management of some form. How to wisely earn, how to save, how to invest, how to give, how to receive, how to build, how to tithe. Not 800 verses, 800 full passages. Honestly, I wish sometimes he would have said more about baptism. Seems like a happy, shiny, smiley sort of moment. A conversation about baptism doesn't challenge me to rethink what I'm planning to purchase next week the way that Jesus' conversations about money did. My son is an indicator of how interesting the conversations we have about money can be. He's nearing eight years old, and he said to me one afternoon, Mommy, how much money do you have? Well, I'm not about to tell you because then you'll tell your friends and then everybody might know how much money we have. When his little friends come over to play, he takes his wallet out of his drawer and he opens it up and he shows them his money. He's got like six bucks, but he wants them to know all about it. And I say, baby, keep your wallet in your, in your drawer. Why, mom? You don't need to let everybody know how much money. And what if one of your friends took your money? Why do people take money? You see the conversations that get rolling when we start talking about money. We're going to engage with what Jesus says, one of the 800 places it shows up in Scripture, by reading to get—well, actually, I'm going to read it for you this morning. Uh, Chapter 12 in the book of Luke, you can grab your copy of the Pew Bible if you'd like and follow along. We're going to read out of Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, called the parable of the rich fool. If you would do me the honor of following along with me, I'll read it for us. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's a man in a crowd where Jesus is teaching, and as we know is the custom of Jesus, he draws a great number of folks to him, and he talks about life. And this is simply what's going on here. Jesus has a crowd. He has said a few things about money previously, and this is an ongoing conversation. And there's a gentleman in the crowd that wants to know if Jesus will moderate a dispute he's having with his brother. It would be custom at that time for a rabbi to intervene perhaps in a situation and make a ruling on something. They had sort of a legal ability to do so. So this gentleman has come to Jesus and says, you know what, I'm having a dispute with my brother and I need you to settle this for me. Probably what has happened is that a father has passed away without leaving a will. And the custom at this time would have been that the older brother would have been given the entire estate, and it was at his discretion to dispose of it as he saw fit. And this is probably the younger brother that either, either didn't get his share or wants more than he thought he received. And so he comes to Jesus and says, settle this out for me. Can you make this right for me? And Jesus, not one to be drawn into the middle of a family feud, not one to further divide people. Not one to want to push two families apart refuses to engage in the details of this conversation and instead gets at the heart of the matter and tells a story. I'm not going to go there, but listen to this story. And He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession." It is the story of a man who already is wealthy. It says, this rich man got more. He hit the proverbial jackpot. He had a bumper crop. It is a story about his and our insatiable desires to keep, to conquer, to own, and to acquire. The man is already rich. He's already living large. And then he faces The problem of what to do with more stuff. He's swimming in his stuff. He has to manage it. He has accumulated a tremendous amount, and I dare say it feels to me at least a little bit like my life sometimes. Many of us are swimming in our stuff. And we know the other cliche that money can't buy happiness, but I have to say I'm not always entirely sure we believe that. I know I don't always buy it, because sometimes I think if I just get that thing, or I orchestrate that little part of my life by buying this, then I can host the party and be happy. I know many of us here today, I just want to throw out this caveat, are struggling with less stuff than we used to have. We have, of course, as we all know, a little bit of an economic disaster around us, and some of us are out of work And some of us wish we had our house again or things like that. I get that. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. But in general, over the past 50 to 100 years or more, the trajectory of the American life has been one of a tremendous bumper crop. We have had the abundance of land, of people, of economic and political resources to lavish greatly on ourselves lots of stuff. We still throw away more food every day than billions of people eat each day. We've got a lot of stuff. And so how we manage those resources is what Jesus is talking to us about. He says, watch out for the lure of those possessions. And if what the psalmist says is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, we have to ask ourselves the question well, whose stuff is it anyway? It's God's. We live in a system that we have built to manage our stuff. We have credits that we can draw on if we want to get more, we have insurance to cover it, we have a multi billion dollar waste industry to haul it away when we get bored with it, right? We've got a system in place. This man found himself in a situation not unlike ours, just 2,000 years removed from today. And Kenneth Bailey points out something fascinating in this parable. There's the line where we see that he was thinking to himself about what to do with this great gift that he'd been given. Now, I think and murder, murmur and talk to myself all day long. Where are my keys? What am I getting at the jewel? This, it's not this sort of talking to himself that we're looking at here. Kenneth Bailey says, The fact that this man thought to himself about what to do betrays even a bigger picture of this story. This is a culture where you did not do things by yourself. The building of a barn was not an individual conversation. What you did with your crop and your buildings and your storehouses, those were family and neighborhood and community decisions that were never made in isolation. So what we also see from this scripture is that this man's wealth has isolated him. He has the biggest house on the multi-acre lot in the farthest out suburb. He has a 15,000 square foot home, yet he's completely alone. His wealth has pulled him into isolation. You know, it's fascinating. I I have a little bit of a penchant for uh, the HGTV show House Hunters. I'm always interested to see what everybody else has got. I make a big bowl of popcorn and I sit there and I watch other people's stuff. And it's fascinating to me because oftentimes the requirements that people have for the new home they wish to purchase is that they want to be as far away from their neighbors as possible. I don't want to see my neighbors. I don't want to hear my neighbors. I want to be as far away as possible. Sometimes we isolate ourselves with our stuff as well. So this gentleman is alone. He's built a bigger barn and he's all by himself to enjoy it. The writer of Ecclesiastes has something to speak into this situation with as well. He, he talks about how all of this is meaningless at the end of the day, that we can't take any of it with us, that the only thing that we can take with us is the work we've done to nurture our souls, and he asks so many provoking questions in Ecclesiastes, and he talks about the concept, I've heard another slogan, he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you ever heard that? He talks about the folly of that. And he says in Ecclesiastes 2, he says, I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. Jesus says, you fool. Tonight your life will be required of you. Who cares about that stuff? Toil for the wrong reasons, is indeed meaningless. Whose abundance have we received? It is God's abundance. It is God's gift to us. And God is asking us, are you going to build a bigger barn with it? Or are you going to invest in the soul-changing, life-shaping things that I have invited you to? Now, I don't know about you, but... um, Sometimes the sermon on money seems predictable in church. And uh, Mike Murphy and I were laughing one time just about how sometimes there's topics that are easier to preach on than others. And sometimes money is the, okay, here we go, 10% tithe. It's the sort of predictable conversation that we have in church it's when the pastor stands up front and makes us feel guilty for the things that we've bought or the ideas we have and the plate passes around and you kind of you know, want to look like you're putting more in than, you, than, than the guy next to you. You know what, friends, I live in the same world that you do. I have a list a mile long of gadgets and toys and trinkets that I want. And I'm not going to stand up here to you today and tell you that money itself is the problem. You know, actually, what we read in scriptures, this man was rich, and Jesus doesn't say anything about his being rich. Money is not the problem, it's our obsession and connection to the money that is the problem. My dad is a small business owner, he employs 30 to 40 people. And my dad does all right, but it's fascinating when you sit and talk with my dad, one of the greatest joys and passions that he has is the fact that what he does helps 30 to 40 other people do what they need to do. That they can feed their families and send their kids to college or whatever it is because my dad runs a good business. Money is not the problem. It's our connection to it. And what I want to point out in this passage is, is, is an either-or sort of situation that I'm going to leave us with. You see, this man's building appears to be out of abundance. He's been given so much, and he has to manage it. And it looks initially like a response to abundance. But in many ways, it's actually a response to fear and scarcity. Store it up because someone else might snatch it away. Get as much of it as you can. Make yourself as comfortable as possible because something might happen. Someone might try to take my stuff. Where should I keep it? What happens if someday I need it? We have choices with how we view our resources. Out of abundance or out of a fear of scarcity. And please know when I'm talking about resources, I'm talking about so much more than our finances. But because Jesus said more about money specifically than so many other things, I'm obviously dwelling here. What drives us? What was driving this man? It was a fear of scarcity was actually driving how he managed his abundance. The same issue came up for the Pharaoh of Egypt, the man who had everything, who was The head of the entire world as it was at that time. Yet he would go to bed, scriptures tell us, at night, tormented by dreams of scarcity, of fear, and of losing it all, and of a deep-seated need for more. Drove him to eventually enslaving the entire nation of Israel. Abundance is Jesus who fed 5,000 and had some left over. It's the widow in 2 Kings receiving the oil that she needs to survive with her family. It's the Sabbath. Abundance is knowing our limits and saying, I just got to take a breath. I can't acquire anymore. I should probably give some of it away. There's enough anyway, right? Scarcity is the fear of running out. It's why the Israelites stored up manna in the desert that went bad anyway. It's when we cannot rest and we're consistently driven to acquire. Walter Brueggemann says those who are living in anxiety and fear, most especially a fear of scarcity, have no energy left for the common good. And this is what Jesus is getting at in this story. What is he doing? This man is building this bigger barn and he's, he's making it all pretty so that he can kick back with a cocktail in the sun on the beach when all is said and done. And he has no energy left for the common good, the good we are all called to contribute to, the good that God wants to see do in the world. He cannot practice neighborliness because he has no neighbors anymore. We are, as I said, a culture of acquisition. We build bigger barns, but we're, we're often unhappy. According to Margot Adler, the average home size in the U.S. today is slightly over 2,300 square feet, which is more than double the average home size, in 1950. Yet even with the four-bedroom colonial, with the pottery barn interior, we are one of the most depressed, anxious, and heavily medicated countries in the world. And of course, not everything is rooted in that. Not all of our struggles are rooted in that, but a lot of them are. We are called to recognize that God has provided this entire world with abundant resources. We have all that we need, and we've probably taken a little bit extra. This plays out more in just financial anxiety. Uh, Juliet Shore is a brilliant uh, scholar. She is a premier researcher. She teaches at Boston College, and she wrote a book years ago called The Overworked American. And this is fascinating. She discusses in her book the decrease of leisure time in the United States. According to Shore, as logic would have it, the more industrialized a culture, the more potential we have for leisure time. From how automobiles are manufactured to how we wash clothing. I throw a big load in the washing machine and I slam the door shut. I push two buttons and I go about my day. I prefer that to the way my great-grandmother would wash clothes. I remember seeing her washboard that had been passed down to my grandmother. More time, more leisure time when culture advances. Around 1948, Shore suggests a huge shift occurred in the United States where work hours, because of the advances, had been decreasing for about 100 years across the industrialized world, which resulted then in an increase in leisure time in the United States, we flipped the trend. Leave it to Americans, right, to flip the trend. We actually began to see a decrease in our leisure time during the 40s. Shore says that every time productivity increases, we have a choice. We can keep output at the same level and have more time for family, for culture, for, for experiencing, or we can produce more. Basically, we're often faced with the question, time money. And while most of the industrialized world chose time, we consistently chose money. By the early 90s, the average employee in American manufacturing was working 320 hours a week more than their European counterparts. We have the opportunity to live in abundance Rather than scarcity. Scarcity drives that system. It says, okay, I I have to work harder and I have to get more. I have to keep up. I need the bigger barn. And it becomes a cycle. You know what, friends? I am not naive enough to suggest that we all just jump off the grid today. Although I would be interested to see how that might go. I know we live in a system. We live in a culture. We all live in a society that while we might want to change the trajectory of it, that is a massive undertaking that only God himself can do as he sees fit on his time. But we can step out of that system and begin to ask ourselves how we live in it. Why am I so interested in driving into that system God is calling us here. He says, live in abundance. Do not be anxious about anything, he says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not be anxious. He speaks to this anxiety. He speaks to taking our time, our talents, our resources, our gifts, our ability to create culture and turning them back to the one who gave them to us. To living in abundance and saying, wow, how blessed am I to have landed in this culture, in this era of history. How much I have. How can I give it back? What is my contribution to the common good? You are all smart people. I'm not going to stand up here this morning and try to give you all 15 different ways to go home and do that. Each of you has a little tug on your heart, and some of it may be financial, and some of it may be time, and some of it may be taking a Sabbath, but how are you going to steward over the things that you've been given so that you can live as Jesus is calling us to in this parable, a life of abundance, an operation in abundance versus scarcity. Every single day in a hundred different ways, you get to choose. Am I going to respond to that out of fear and anxiety, or am I going to respond to that opportunity, gift, resource, out of abundance? There's enough. There's enough. It's a gift. I can't take it with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contribute it to the common good. Now, this plays out in my house uh, in a very specific, interesting way. Um, I, my husband, Joel, and I moved into the house that we live in right now about three years ago. I'll close with this little story. We have, we have a fabulous house. We have more, more space than we need. We have three children, and they can run all over the place, and they love Star Wars and can play with their lightsabers all over the house. It's, it's fabulous for us. We, uh, we don't have furniture in more than half of our house. <laughs> We haven't um, had the financial resources to furnish our house. Um, I don't know if any of you have children that play ice hockey. We're a hockey family, and that is not a cheap sport, so I often joke when people come over. I say, you can't sit on my couch, but you can sit on these hockey bags here, and we can have a cup of coffee together. I have purposely not invited people to my home, some people in this room, because I operate out of fear and scarcity sometimes. What are they going to think if they come over and they have to sit on a folding chair in the living room? When people come to my house and they ring my doorbell, some of my neighbors, the first thing I do is apologize, go, oh, come on in. We, we, we're looking into furniture. I, I've, got to, I've got to explain it right away. My husband always laughs. He's like, who cares? I do. I do. Once I get it all right in my pretty little house, then I can have you over then I will be able to use the resources God's given me. Never mind that I already have abundant resources. I have a roof over my head. I have people that love me. And I have neighbors that want to come over. That is abundance, my friends. And so rather than live in that, I choose to live in scarcity. And I decide not to have people over until everything is right. That's one little, one little part of my life. That plays itself out in a hundred different ways every single day. And I don't know what it is for you, but what do you cling to? What do you hold on to? What are you waiting until it's bigger and better for? Or what have you stored up? What are you being told to release? Because if I was willing and ready to live into abundance, which now I have to be because I proclaimed it publicly, right? <laughs> so if anybody calls me, I have to say, come on over. Abundance would say come on in sit on the floor You know take the chair that I do have home with you if you need it You want to spend the night? We'll drag a mattress down from one of my kids rooms. We'll throw it on the floor You can sleep there. We'll work it out. We're friends. We're part of the common community together. We'll work together for one another's good It says maybe I won't ever buy that couch at all because there's people who don't even have things to eat And I just keep looking at the Pottery Barn catalog Living in abundance Looks that way versus scarcity. At least that's how it looks for my life. And my invitation for all of us today is to consider Jesus' call to live out of abundance. Do not let fear drive you. Take your resources, hold loosely to them because they're not ours anyway, and flip them back to our good Lord and his work in this world. Live in abundance. Give what is good Give of yourself. Steward wisely over all that you have. And do not let the fear and anxiety of this world trump what brugemann calls the common good that God is doing all around us every single day. Amen? Amen. All right. With that, let's pray together. Lord, it's a tough word sometimes to Talk through all that you have asked of us. Lord, your parables are brilliant. They're winsome, wise calls to different action. And Lord, I pray that for each of us in whatever way we find ourselves like the man in that story who's just got to get that bigger barn, get it all right, I pray that you would move us from that story that you would invite us to live every day in your narrative of abundance rather than our own narratives of fear and scarcity and anxiety. For those are not from you. May we rest well, give generously, and love lavishly. In your name we pray these things. Amen.